0: Happy to be here. Uh, I didn't know about much about this institution, but the resources here seem uh, remarkable. And I'm very, very uh, looking forward to, to learning more about it during my, my visit. Uh, I, I um, uh, ran into Timothy last year at the uh, Political Science Association meetings, and I, I, I was presenting a chapter from his new book, Capital and Collusion. Uh, and uh, he suggested there be potential audience here, and, and in fact, he's asked me to basically summarize many of the uh, conclusions of the book which appear in, in chapter 10, and, and I know that some of you have had a chance to see that it's been circulated. So uh, I'm gonna just briefly summarize what's in this chapter, assuming that some of you have knowledge about it, and also uh, I'm a free, feel free to ask me questions as we go along or to make comments, I'm quite uh, accustomed to that, and uh, so, so feel free to put your hand up or even shout out if, you, if you'd like to. Um, well, a little background about this book. This book really provides a, a new analytical framework for comparative economics, and it compares the uh, emerging market capital structures of all of the uh, major growing economies in the world. So it does not cover uh, economies that, uh, where, that, that haven't either received international loans or are you know, sometimes described as failing states or countries that are in the the very low, bottom 40 countries in the world. And, and, and one of the reasons is that there's very little data for those countries, which is consistent with the theory uh, of information that the book is, is built upon. Uh, so so the, the selection of countries uh, is, is primarily China, India, East Asia, and Latin America. Uh, so most uh, Africa is left out, and, uh, and Central uh, and former Soviet Union is left out. Uh, The last chapter is about how the state serves the function of a risk mitigator and how this over the period of uh, how in the experiences or the data or evidence that we have the state emerged as as being capable to mobilize uh, the institutions to uh, mitigate social risk and and, and how that is done in a public manner. And the reason why um, that's very important I think to development economics is that um, if you look at the standard economic models that are used by economists, and, and these are very, very standard in the sense that financial economics really doesn't, uh, is really almost a very orthodox uh, variant of economics. And there the basic assumption is that um, risk can be bought and sold in the marketplace. Uh, and this is what financial markets are all about. And in the world that is envisioned in this literature, uh, all forms of social welfare, including uh, household care, including intergenerational care, can be optimized through market transactions. And what makes these transactions possible is that people have different assessments of risk. And because they have different assessments of risk, there are opportunities for trade. And eventually, these opportunities lead uh, towards the most efficient managers uh, manage, managing the, the risk of, uh, of large numbers of people. So, for example, you get the General Electrics or the Microsofts or the uh, uh, General Motors of this world, which which are essentially um, organizations that manage the risks that are inherent in a particular type of production process, um, and, and they do this not only for their they do this uh, largely through public uh, ownership. Uh, and of course these types of entities do not exist and have not sprung into existence in most of the, most of the developing world. Um, now contemporary financial theory also strongly affirms that, that divergent capacities to manage risk and the different ideas of what constitute risk are actually opportunities. So for example, uh, you may think, you know, a particular house is going to appreciate more than the person that's owning it. You'll offer that person sufficient amount of money and they move out and you can, and it's your property uh but that's because you have assessments based on some some manage, some some calculable uh, uh some 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 uh, calculation that you're able to uh, com- compute or compute but in the developing world uh, most of the resources uh are not sub- are not uh, are not, uh, are, not uh, are not open to these uh, uh kinds of calculations so what I've done is I've gone back to a distinction that was found in the economic literature of the 1920s uh, when when Frank Knight was a very big name in economics, and of course Keynes was a very big uh, 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 voice in economics, uh, and they made the distinction between measurable risks and immeasurable uncertainties. And this distinction essentially uh, disappeared from the literature uh, due to the Bayesian revolution which is more or less characterized uh, risk assessment uh, in all, well up until the, the present. And, and the Bayesian assumption, is, the Bayesian, among the, the assumption of the Bayesian world is, is that um, it, it depends on how much investment you make in collecting information. Uh, and so the difference between risk and uncertainty is a, ma- a matter of degree. And, and in fact, there is no real difference. Uh, so, so most uh, of the game theoretical literature and the decision science literature of the last 50 years, uh, that that difference that that might uh, affirm has been effaced. Um, now, I'm actually calling for the uh, resurrection of those distinctions, uh, and, I, and I and I think they're very useful in trying to distinguish between developed and underdeveloped market economy, uh, markets in in, in uh, different regions of the world. Um, a wide range of economic and social activities in developed countries are optimized being market, uh, via market-based risk management techniques that do indeed conform to the expectations of the literature and transfer risk to the best suited managers. Uh, however, in developing societies, many risks cannot be measured and, th- and thus the optimal manager cannot be found. In fact, what usually happens in developing societies is that most of the risks that people face are managed through uh, investment and in self-insurance uh, and that deprives the financial system and the economy of resources uh, and it means that there are very a uh, much smaller number of cooperative ventures between uh, parties uh, who are not related to each other. Uh, now there's a great deal of literature uh, recently, particularly uh, Schiller uh, has written about the, the new horizons for risk management that will eventually include uh, managing risk of uh, economic inequality in society. Uh, and and, and he's written a wonderful book about the new financial order, which uh, covers that. Now the the significance of that thinking to me is that it it is representative of a growing divergence between the capabilities of developed countries and underdeveloped countries. Uh, and so one of the phenomenon that that my book discusses is the growing wealth gap between countries uh, in the world, which is now wider than it has ever been in any historical period, so that the difference between the United States and, and Somalia is, is, a great, is greater than, than any recorded wealth gap in the history of the world uh, and, and largely because of the increasingly effective risk mitigation tools that are available that allow for the pooling of capital and the effective investment of capital in, 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 in highly developed market economies. And this is another reason why um, it becomes more and more difficult for the countries of the world to converge towards the uh, productivity standards of the higher developed countries uh, simply because uh, the risk management capabilities uh, to, to, um, to put resources into the hands of innovators uh, do not exist in developing countries uh, even countries like China or India that are trying to uh, industrialize uh, the industrial c- 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 uh, the industrial revolution, provides much smaller um, gains uh, in productivity than do the the high technology areas. So the the greater gains of productivity that that are experienced by countries that are capable of uh, existing in high technology uh, continue to create a larger wealth gap between rich and poor in the world. So this is the the issue that this book, uh, or, or, or at least the background of this book, uh, and, uh, and, it, and it posits the theory that the pervasive and deep uncertainty is the major reason why developing countries do not achieve their potential. Why the divergent outcomes, uh, make it difficult for unrelated, uh, or uh, estimates of outcomes, uh, and there's an information issue there, make it difficult for unrelated parties to reach an agreement, uh, and the more uncertain the mutual in, endeavor appears, the less likely there will be agreements that can lead to joint action. So I identify three basic sources of uncertainty. I call these the, um, the Trinity of Uncertainty in Economic Development. And the first uh, is the one that has been most thoroughly covered by the economic literature, which of course is the market-based risk or economic risk, which is primarily related to uh, weak contract enforcement. Uh, and and the literature uh, led by people like Hernando de Soto, who some of you may have heard of, or Doug North's early work. Uh, Establishes or, or asserts that the protection of property rights is really the key uh, to uh, promoting economic development. Uh, my view is that this this is not not really accurate at all because the strength uh, of the property right regime depends upon its foundations in the social and political structure of the society. And so um, I look at other uh, the, the forms of uncertainty that arise from social and political sources and in the social. Sources, I identify three basic forms of uncertainty. One is the inability to make estimates of social risk so that um, if you look to experts on, on the, the probability that a society will have a, a social insurrection, let's say, uh, the, the, the variance among experts is so great that their predictions are virtually uh, meaningless in terms of uh, guiding uh, decision making. So that's one form of uncertainty. But another form of uncertainty is that Developing societies are usually so polarized socially that uh, they're typically unable to reach a consensus on social priorities, particularly budgetary priorities, which means that they tend to spend uh, inadequate sums of money on, on what economists call non-traded goods, such as uh, education or health or intergenerational care. And so these, uh, these, or infrastructure even, uh, so these non-tradable goods, uh, um, uh, are, are inadequate, uh, the, the supply is inadequate. So for example, you find the interesting anomaly in developing societies that they have very good access to cell phones, but they have very inadequate access to roads, uh, and the reason being that you, you can um, you can privatize uh, cell phone uh, use, but uh, obviously because of the public good components of roads, you can't uh, do that as easily, uh, and so there the, the role of the state becomes essential. Uh, and the other, pro- uh, the third dimension is what I call. This is what I spoke about uh, uh, in the September meetings. Is the uh, policy credibility uh, is uncertain because of the divergence of, of views. So that um, you have a constant, uh, you have a lack of continuity in policy formation uh, because when one group uh, comes in, they're very likely to uh, to reduce or change the, the the policy matrix in such a way so that the, the the property rights. Uh, of, of the previous regime are, are challenged, so those property rights are actually uncertain. Um, so the third, uh, so that, that's now we move ahead into what I call the political sources of uncertainty, and this um, and, and this has to do with what I call the uh, economic logic of autocracy, which I've written several articles about in, in a book in, in 2000. Some of you may have seen "Governing for Prosperity," Yale University Press, and in there uh, I argue that. Um, the distribution of policy decisions in developing countries do not necessarily represent the best analytical judgments about the social utility of a policy's outcome but in fact represent the utility concerns of the leadership uh and their concern is primarily to stay in office uh, as long as possible and so the um, there is a stru- there is a divergence for p- between policies that uh leadership uses to uh, strengthen their their grip on power and the uh, the policies that would be useful to grow the economy. Uh, And in fact, the financial disorder uh, and and, and lack of uh, information often benefits autocratic regimes because it makes uh, resource holders or or potential investors dependent on the regime. And when information transparency uh, becomes more pervasive, it means that people uh, who are not related to the government directly can, uh, can, ex- can can experience uh, opportunities have access opportunities independently of the, of, of the autocrat, which means the autocrat's position is weakened. So so the autocrat does not have incentive to provide that kind of transparency, which uh, obviously is the basis of financial markets and the basis of, of investments and the basis of uh, what I've defined as the driving force for growth, which is the pooling of resources among unrelated parties so um, uncertainty affects cooperation uh in many, many ways. Uh and 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 um, what I'm gonna talk about today is how the government uh may act as a, a mitigator of these risks and and, and and I would trace the history of how this was done um, in the United States, Germany, and Britain. Uh there are many, many other potential examples one can use, but these are the ones I, I spend the most time. Looking at, and uh, I actually found in American history some very important lessons. for, Thank you. For, um, thank you. Okay, we're not getting. No, oh, you having trouble hearing me? That was, that was too loud. Oh, too loud. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> we're, we're getting sort of resonant uh, Because where I'm standing, I'm hearing large echoes. So I, I yeah. assume that you're hearing me very clearly. So. Um, the point is that the potential value of, of, uh, of eliminating risk in developing markets is so great that it would be, it would dwarf significantly the risk management systems that we have that we are uh, presently so impressed by such as the stock market of New London or Tokyo. Uh, so how do you design institutions that would mitigate some of the risk that would make it possible to create more value uh, in, for the resources uh, and for the both human resources and, and, and national endowments of developing countries. Uh, so I ask how, how did this happen in the United States? And actually, uh, the market economy, uh, is supported uh, in the U.S. and in Britain by a wide range of activities. Some, of course, provided by the government, some provided by the private sector. And usually these two work hand in hand so that, um, the notion that the, the private sector can be the basis for uh, all of the uh, risk mitigation is not is not shown by history because much of the data that, uh, for example, insurance firms depend on is generated by the government. So if the government data is not accurate, uh, then the insurance companies can't really offer very good products. Um, and, and I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, and in fact, as you know, in many developing countries, the data is, is, is very, uh, uh, corrupted, and in many countries, for example, uh, do not conduct a, con- a census. Uh, for example, Pakistan went for for many, many decades without one because of the, uh, uh, the political implications that would result from from, from the census for, for the existing uh, governing coalition. Um, well, the lack of information makes it very difficult for countries to, uh, or governments to equitably collect and then allocate public resources. And a very interesting book has been written about the history of this in the United States by someone named David Moss, which is a Harvard University Press book about risk. And um, what's interesting there is that he views the uh, emergence of these institutions as part of a very complex interactive process in which lawmakers, the public, uh, and the political parties uh, went through many consecutive episodes of a consensus building, uh, which led them to more and more risk mitigating role, but it started at very, very, very low levels, Uh, and of course um, there are several uh, very important moments in the history of this, the the American Civil War, the First World War, uh, and then probably the most important turning point uh, was the Great Depression. Uh, And of course, in the Great Depression, the uh, U.S. government, in order to uh, forestall social uh, unrest or social uncertainty, uh, which was significantly hampering, in many people's opinions, the potential recovery of the stock market. And there's interesting uh, data now about, about the fact that the, the failure of the stock market to rebound had a lot to do with perceptions of risk uh, rather than actual underlying economic fundamentals in the same way that the price of oil has reflected risk uh, after the invasion of Iraq because the oil, the level of oil was actually uh, not at, at risk, it was, it was uncertainty, uh, and, and that, that caused the price to increase well well. Uh, during the Great uh, Depression, uh, there was the same kind of issue, uh, and so people uh, strongly recommended that to preserve the market system in the United States, that there should be a social security system, that there should be uh, indemnification for workers who are injured and, and the whole basically what we, we know of the New Deal. Now the question is, why didn't it come earlier? It had come much earlier in other countries, particularly Germany, so what's the difference between the United States and Germany in that regard? Uh, and I'll get, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but it's not just the Great Depression. The whole Industrial Revolution, when we look back at it, is really dependent on risk management policies. Uh, for example, limited liability corporations that emerged in the 1830s and banking regulation, bankruptcy law, fixed exchange rates, the predictable uh, enforcement of property rights, all of which emerged in the 19th century, significantly uh, altered the behavior of of individuals and lengthened their time horizons. Uh, and so it's very clear that, that, that this is a long, complicated process uh, and that this process is very intimately related to the level of investment and to productivity growth. Uh, and it's this process that we, 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 we either feel can be truncated or, or, elim- or eliminated, uh, when we, when we think about emerging market economies because we take for granted the, the existence of these institutions. Um, well, I, I, make the argument of the, s- the fundamental significance of this, uh, but I, but, but uh, Robert Schiller, who, who in, the, in this uh, visionary book that I mentioned earlier, the New Financial Order talk, who, in which he advocates government uh, private uh, government insurance against inequality. Uh, he, he makes the case that the reduction of risk on a greater scale provides a substantial impetus to human and economic progress. Uh, and, and it's in that uh, spirit uh, that, that, I, that I make the argument that, that this is so fundamental to, to uh, economic prosperity. So what happened uh, before, when uh, the, uh, we go back to the, to the United States and look before the Great Depression, uh, and we, uh, as mentioned the Civil War, is an interesting time to look because during the Civil War, the US government the, um, tried to impose a, a income tax uh, and it was unsuccessful. And the reason it was unsuccessful is that it was carried out in much the way that revenue collection is carried out in the Third World in a, in a poli- political way uh, in which the rich people bought exemptions and, and, and the tax basically fell on the poor uh, and there was, it was very clearly uh, mismanaged uh, and, 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 and the, the levels of taxation fell on, 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 on people in terms of their political access rather than in terms of their actual wealth. Also, nobody in, 19, um, in 1864 trusted the government sufficiently to give them any information about their revenue. So uh, to a certain extent, the government tax colleges were working uh, out of uh, in a blind spot. And it wasn't really possible to make this politically acceptable and, and, and the tax eventually was eliminated as it had earlier been in Britain for the same reasons. Um, so people did not essentially trust the government to acquire information in a fair and reliable manner and to use it in a fair and a reliable manner. So what happened in the interim? Well, in the interim, of, of course, you have the whole history of the progressive movement and the building up of the, the bureaucratic and administrative capability of government, beginning with the Pendleton Act, and, 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 and by the time, um, by the time uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt came along, uh, government had a uh, capacity to perform many, many tasks, including the collection of the income tax, which now made it possible to move into this new area of, uh, social, uh, of social investment and social risk management. Um, now, one, if, having said that, uh, stepping back to the developing countries again, I want to go back into that, uh, that issue. Uh, we look at the uh, Millennium Development Goals that many of you have heard about were, were, uh, were, were determined by the United Nations Millennium Summit in the year 2000. And these are the goals that that Jeffrey Sachs of course uh, talks about in in his new book and and wherever he goes. And and this is supposed to be an international commitment to basically reduce all of the measurable indicators of human poverty and suffering around the world. What's interesting is that besides for China uh, and a little bit in certain parts of India, virtually no progress has been made on these goals. And it's not because of the lack of resources nor the lack of ideas it's really the political incentives of leadership to, uh, to provide the, the, um, the kinds of institutions that would help to accomplish this task. Uh, and, and why is there this institutional vacuum? A lot of it has to do with, uh, according to the research in this book, the uh, inclusiveness of regimes and the size of the coalitions that support regime leaders. And so that when, when, when regime leaders are supported by large coalitions, uh, they have to provide public goods uh, to stay in office. They don't stay in office very long because they have to be very competitive in providing this. Uh, but in, in, in autocratic regimes, which are essentially regimes that depend upon small winning coalitions, um, the regime actually does better by providing private goods to its backers, who may be the military, who may be uh, wealthy business people, Who may be the secret police, Uh, and 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 so that those systems uh, of non-inclusive governance uh, almost always correlate with low human development indicators. So the problem uh, isn't uh, the, the the problem, according to our assessment, is is the is the political structure and foundation and coalitional foundation of governments, and that's the one issue that the United Nations and other development organizations haven't addressed at all because it's not in their mandate. Uh, and so uh, as a result, I would argue that very little progress has been made. So the, the big, the, bl- the black box here, the area that nobody likes to look at uh, is, is public sector management. Um, and uh, I would say that the disappointment uh, with regard to the Millennium Development Goals uh, really lies in this particular black box. Uh, Mismanagement keeps countries like Bolivia or the Philippines locked into uh, near-zero growth for extended periods of time, Uh, and and, and in these countries, you often hear the, the statement, well, we don't have the money. We're not a rich country, so we really can't have a good bureaucracy or we really can't have." good informational transparency in the, in the revenue system. Well, I say that this is uh, very, unbelievable, not not very credible because having been an economic historian and uh, I know that the English monarchy of the 11th century at uh, the time of the doomsday books was actually able to accomplish most of the tasks of, of carefully uh, registering all productive properties without computers and without any of the informational resources that countries now have at their disposal and in fact, uh, having a good system of public administration is really not uh, resource dependent. Uh, and that's where I go back to this question of uh, mid-19th century Germany. It was actually much poorer than England or France uh, and, and in the United States. But nevertheless, it was able to maintain a very effective system of public administration uh, as Gary Miller has explained. Uh, it used a, a system of hierarchy which makes it easy to trade off social acceptance and esteem against wealth. And the point is that um, the professionalization of the bureaucracy could, could be conducted uh, in large part in, in highly underdeveloped countries. Also Russia did this uh, in the 18th and 19th and certainly 20th century without much uh, of a market economy. Uh, so um, what what can we learn when we look more closely at the United States? Uh, and what we learned here is that, well, Germany was able to uh, introduce uh, risk mitigation, uh, social risk mitigation or what we call now today social protection much earlier than England or France or the United States because it had a credible and reliable bureaucracy so that by the 1880s and 1890s, it was able to take on these functions and actually perform them in a relatively uh, effective manner. But in the United States, um, it, 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 the capability really did not exist to manage a system uh, even to manage the revenue collection up and, uh, until, until, the, uh, until the early, and, well, uh, early 1920s, 1930s, um, and it was because of, of, of the creation, I would argue, of a capable civil service, uh, which was not based on, on partisan office holders. Uh, and, 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 um, and the history of that is uh, yes.
1: Can I push you on this a little bit? Yes, of course. Why do you think is it that Germany was able to create the, the effective of uh, bureaucracy? It seems like we're just kind of, you mm-hmm. can always kind of keep peeling the onion back. You know? right. they have to have good policies because they have good bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and then, you know, so why do some countries get good bureaucracy and want some countries get back? Do you want to fold it all the way back to in the inclusiveness and exclusiveness?
0: Well, I would say that the Germany, uh, the, the problem of Germany was its competition. Uh, with the British uh, and the French having missed out on imperialism, they were they were really falling behind. Uh, they were not unified as a country. Uh, they were feeling they were facing very very significant economic threat, and their standard of living was clearly much lower than that of the uh, of the uh, Atlantic powers. Uh, and so they felt a strong national compulsion, uh, especially under Bismarck, to to catch up. Yes. Uh, I, I was wondering
2: though. That was the same compulsion felt by any number of countries in Central Europe at that point in time. How come the Germans made something out of it Yeah, than I mean, I think, I mean, think no. like you're know, mm-hmm. why? Well, the fail you, in the it's, it's a, a very interesting question. The
0: and Timothy and others here are scholars of that part of the world. Uh, I am not, uh, uh, so I really can't answer it. Uh, uh, I am, you know, as you may or may not know, primarily a specialist on, on Asia. Uh, so I can't, I I don't know enough about that part of European history, uh, to, to answer the question. I'd love to have an answer. I would encourage you to, to look at that and, and uh, maybe you can, this framework that I'm suggesting can be helpful. Uh, I found the work of Stephen Skolvernik very helpful, uh, who has written about the American, uh, the American, uh, difficulties, uh, in creating uh, a, an effective federal bureaucracy, and how very long it took. And, 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 and uh, that's a very, uh, very interesting book that he's written. And and um, and probably if you apply, if you look at some other countries with the same degree of detail, uh, then you would find the answer. Now, that kind of question really requires a great deal of local knowledge about a country's politics. Uh, it's, it's, it, and that's, it requires really, uh, intense regional understanding of the politics of a country, the coalitional structure of a country, the uh, ideas and interests and institutions of a country. Uh, and, and so I haven't, I haven't been able to do that. Uh, but what I can uh, expound upon is that so long as there are doubts about the capacity and impartiality of government, um, there's going to be a limited uh, spending capacity and a little, limited expenditure capacity, and so it's gonna be very hard for these market uh, fundamentals uh, such as social protection to be in place, Uh, and that means uh, that the society is not gonna be able to engage in the the trades and the exchanges necessary to to support an effective market process, and I I cite uh, uh, an Indian scholar, uh, Pranab Bharthan, who some of you may know, who, who works at Berkeley, uh, and he makes the argument that the most important deficit in India today is, uh, is the incapability of government and the administration mechanism of government to deliver public services. And not only does this mean that people in India don't have public services that people in China or other countries have, but it also means that there's very little support for expanding the market economy or for economic liberalization because what they see in the absence of a of social protection, mm-hmm. the absence of infrastructure and the absence of education is that the opportunities and the benefits of market expansion go to a small group of the population. So for example, uh, there, there you have what I, I call the lack of social continuity uh, and the weak social foundations for market policies in countries like India as in, as in Latin America. So that um, so that in India, for example, right now, those of you who are paying attention to India, you see that the Congress party because of its coalition is very, very unable to take the next steps to open up the economy uh, in a dramatic fashion. Uh, and the reason being that uh, the, the social social support for that is simply absent because the government doesn't perform any of these risk mitigating roles that I've identified as fundamental to the success of market economies. Um, Let me just briefly look at taxes, as Timothy has mentioned, taxes has been one of my most important research areas uh, and and I relate uh, this very strongly to um, the the success of the government to collect taxes also has a lot to do with the uh, ability to measure income accurately. Uh, and the ability to measure income accurately, as I said, is a, is a launching pad for the effective risk mitigation that occurs in the private sector, because that's the information that people use for insurance, for mortgages, for a lot of the banking. Uh, a lot of the uh, risk uh, pooling uh, concepts come from, uh, based on, on the availability of this kind of information. Um, let me briefly, uh, I, I make that argument in, in the book and in a lot of other places. Let me just briefly put this in the context of uh, development politics uh, where we often hear the IMF trying to determine a, what they can consider a sustainable level of debt. So it's a kind of an equation that they ask economists to come up with. What's the level of debt given the resource base of an economy? My argument is um, that it has no, it's only loosely related to the resource base the level of debt that an economy is able to sustain has to do primarily with the credibility of a government's commitment to repay its debt. Of course, I'm very prejudiced towards that since I've written several books on that subject, but but I also believe it it reflects uh, very much the the, the dilemmas in development politics today is that um, some governments are able to have a much higher percentage of debt to GDP than others and it doesn't have the economic consequences. For example, Japan and the United States uh, have very, very high levels of debt. Uh, England had a much level higher of debt than France or Germany did uh, in the 19th century uh, because of the credibility of repayment, largely because of the role of the, of the British uh, Parliament, which is a great deal of literature. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that. Uh, but this is, once again, so obvious to people who study politics, but not at all obvious to the IMF. Uh, The IMF has never made uh, made a study that links the credibility of repayment to interest rates or to the existence of of, of representative bodies in countries that they do business in. Uh, It was pretty obvious to me that this is the main dilemma that China faces in the future. Uh, I've talked about this in several uh, scenarios with the IMF and they always say that's a really clever argument but we can't use it because our mandate is apolitical and you're basically telling us that, that good government finance is political. And our viewpoint is that it's technical. You know, if it was political, we we couldn't operate. You know, we're not a political body; we're a technical body. So anyway, that's where that goes. But there's a new um, there's a new dilemma, actually, I think, that we face in in, in that because of our great capacity now to uh, to sell our debt to uh, overseas and also to to um, to to, uh, these funds and, and insurance companies, we actually now have much less awareness of our debt levels because it's not directly related to citizen taxation. So I think one of the problems we face in the United States where the, um, the portion of debt, uh, of public debt held by domestic financial intermediaries has gone up to 37%, 77% of Japan, is that we don't realize how much debt we have on our shoulders because it's, it's intermediated. Uh, it's intermediated often to people outside the United States, but certainly to these large agencies uh, and so this, I think, creates uh, a political uh, environment in which we, we do a, a number of things that, uh, that, that are not uh, very sustainable. But that's a uh, related but uh, uh, issue that I, that I simply raised for, for your attention. The problem in the developing world is that most of the developing countries that have potential, uh, such as, for example, the Philippines always recognized as one of the most, uh, countries with the greatest potential, but they're only able to collect 11% of, um, G, uh, of, of, of uh, GDP as taxes, which is, puts them in the low, low, low income uh, area. In the, in, in the middle income countries generally collect from 20 to 25%, the upper uh, from 33% upward, and we are at uh, the bottom of the upper in that regard. Um, but when the country is able to collect only 11% uh, of GDP uh, as taxes, it means that it's gonna have to develop using borrowed funds uh, and what happens with borrowed funds is that the funds, particularly if it's a country that has political uh, clout uh, or friends in, in, in high places in the world, comes from uh, foreign entities or from the World Bank or from the IMF or from bilateral investment. So the people see no uh, uh, have no concern about how accountable or how, how uh, effectively that's used and so, for example, uh, they say, uh, well, for example, the president, uh, president of the Philippines, Pagala Arroyo made the highway after herself and was a $1 billion project of what $600 million was stolen. Uh, 600 billion peso was st- stolen. So it's like more than half of the project has been identified as corruption. Uh, and how can you possibly expect people to pay taxes uh, in, in that kind of environment? Uh, so that puts her in a situation where she can't collect taxes, she refuses to create an independent internal revenue service, and she refuses to go after uh, the, the non-paying uh, uh, agrarian elites and industrial elites, uh, many of whom haven't paid taxes in 10 or 20 years. Uh, so that problem is, I think, a fundamental problem to the development of these countries. And unless you strengthen the link between tax collection and government uh, and government and representative bodies in government finance, you will not really solve the problem of how effectively uh, countries use their development resources and so you won't see countries uh, converging uh, as economic theory would, would predict they ought to. Now let me just conclude this uh, by talking about what I call shocks to the system because that's another part of uncertainty that I, that I discuss in great detail in the book which is that uh, one of the aspects of developing societies is that they're much more uh, su- subjected to volatility than developed societies. So for example, people make these predictions about China uh, based on you know, how they've grown in the last 20 years, but they don't realize that China has very weak institutions to deal with, let's say, a shock to the system, such as a banking crisis meltdown or environmental meltdown. And so China's growth is much more likely to be subjected to volatility. So a lot of these predictions about how quickly China will, will, will become a, a major economic superpower uh, don't reflect that. Uh, and the question is uh, why are developing countries so prone to uh, bad management of uh, volatility or, bad or, or so prone to shocks? And the answer has a lot to do with the fact that the information structures and the participation in the knowledge creation or policy formation in these countries is restricted to a very, very small number of people, so that the expertise of large groups of independent thinkers or independent uh, sectors of the economy never filter into the policy process. Uh, either the people are not represented, or they, they know their views are not uh, are not sought after, and so decision makers uh, at the top have a very limited um, uh, menu of options or ideas from which to choose from in order to, to manage or let's say hedge against unpredictable dangers. Um, so in the tools even the tools uh, for navigating a future course are scarce. And in this case, people will inevitably respond by taking short-term motives uh, or, or actions or by gratifying immediate needs. I mean, why should anybody in a country like Thailand Worry about the uh, ecological disaster that's occurring there. Uh, they know the government has no contingency plans, so they try to you know, make as much money as they can with, without considering the damage they do to the environment. And this is you know, one of the reasons why you have all these uh, pandemics that are now uh, occurring in, in, in Asia. There's not the proper, um, there's not, there's not, a, there's, not a, there's not a proper structure in place uh, to monitor this, uh, and and so. You have a, a, a insufficient amount of knowledge in collective uh, an insufficient amount of collective decision making um, in which regimes that have narrow constituencies are in effect only concerned with one possible future, and that's which affects their immediate prospects for the survival of the incumbent coalition. Uh, so you know if you're a member of that coalition, you, you don't care whether or not the courts don't work because you don't need them. you don't care whether the roads, uh, don't exist because you have your own helicopters and, and, air, and private airplanes. You don't concern yourself with the public security because you have your own private police force or your own private armies. Uh, you don't care about education failure in the country because you have your own private schools. You send your children to schools in the United States. So, so these these people in these uh, autocratic regimes, and I'm talking now about very large countries like Pakistan or the Philippines, uh, they, they don't they don't worry about the insufficient uh, public. Uh, cap- uh, institutions because the the wealthy people in these countries, they don't even worry about the the potential failure of the Philippine banking system, uh, which is on the verge of a complete collapse because most of the people who have money in the country don't keep it in the country and they don't keep it in peso. Uh, so so in those environments, you're going to get very poor preparation for crises and you're going to get very crisis-prone environments. Uh, multiple views of the future are lacking. Multiple sources of information are stifled. Multiple organizations to carry out strategic uh, objectives in the name of the collective uh, body of the, of the, of the nation are, are even banned. Models of the future that are uh, advocated by autocrats uh, usually have very simplistic and inadequate variables. For example, if you remember some of the predictions that, that Saddam Hussein was making and his, and his people were making about about what, what the uh, what was happening to their country, uh, it was just. Uh, it seemed, to be, uh, it seemed to be ludicrous to many people uh, simply because of the lack of, of common information and information that was common here. Another example is, is, is Pakistan during the Bangladesh wars when the Pakistanis believed uh, that they were going to win this war when everybody told them that they didn't have a chance. But they didn't trust any information other than the information uh, that the narrow military elite had. And so they, they went into a war in which they were defeated and their country was cut in half. And so when we look at this, we ask, well, how could they have been so blind? How did it come they didn't know that they faced imminent defeat when in fact they were absolutely sure of, of winning? And, and in fact they, they went into this thing uh, convinced uh, that they were going to win in a, in a short period of time. And, and, and I think the answer is uh, what I'm talking about here. Um, the inability to deal with surprises, the inability to, to deal with, uh, and, and this also is reflecting the fact that in many of developing societies you see these plans. For the future, Pakistan 2015, Mozambique 2020, in which they have these great ideas about how they're going to become a developed industrial society, but no uh, discussion of, of the implementation involved. Uh, and, and so, this I can go on and on about this. But I see I'm actually uh, I'm going uh, into the time that I'd like to allocate to you uh, with reg- to, to have questions and to give me your your response. Uh, I just maybe uh, conclude by making a very simple statement about the politics of institutional change. Um, a lot of what goes on in the, in the development of politics of organizations like the World Bank um, has to do with uh, the growth and the, and the importance of the institutional school of economists, of which I guess I would consider myself a part. And so you hear a great deal of emphasis on the rule of law, property rights. Uh, but you know, as Timothy's work has shown and, and, and my work has shown, uh, these are insufficient uh, without the uh, appropriate political foundations. Uh, and so lots of money has been spent on these things. I mean, you hear people talk about uh, how we, we didn't do institution building in the former Soviet Union, but we spent you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars on this, hundreds of millions. Uh, but we don't have much impact. Because uh, it was not an institutional design without attending without to what I call the political and social uh, uncertainty factors, um, doesn't is, is not credible, is not sustainable, is not viable, uh, is not durable, and so that's to a great extent what we've seen. So we've got to actually make the next uh, to scale up our, our ability to uh, to provide effective development assistance we really have to start taking into account these other factors and how they relate to each other. Uh, and for that, we really need new institutions, uh, both the bilateral institutions, we need institutions that have a different vision of how the world works, and we also need uh, international agreements uh, and, and organizations that, that are able to undertake uh, a much more realistic program for development. Uh, so that's what I would leave you with, and I'm, I'm open. To, I'd like to uh, Answer your questions. I see two people already. Why don't you ask the first question? Uh,
2: Germany being the pioneer, of uh, isn't that uh, related to the fact that they are the pioneer of uh, modern army? Of what? Modern army fighting. More? Well,
0: I, I I don't I don't think Germany is a pioneer of modern army. What you call the modern army? Uh, modern army, army military history has many many stages. Uh, the Germans. A fighting, um, had a fighting, had a good army, I mean, a, 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 I'm just not sure what you mean by that. <laughs> what? The Prussian army. The Prussian army, it was able to defeat France, it wasn't able to defeat the British, it didn't have a Navy, it didn't have, uh, I mean, it's I just, just simply not correct. Um, yes? You, you were the
3: um, I, I'd like to push on a couple of things. The first is I think it's really interesting that you're coming back to state capacity on the question of, uh, in the beginning of the, the chapter in your talk, you we were discussing the main problems why does the state hasn't been playing the role in the developing countries with mistrust of information versus um, the absence of collective problems. Um, I wonder if those are basically just related to an underlying problem of degree of democratization. Before that, you know, the states can't collect right. um, information or taxes because mm-hmm. they're incapable, and they're incapable no. because they don't have the resources. So, this is a cycle no. we have to break with something. Is this is there an underlying factor there? Because states are, in a lot of the development are clearly quite capable of things that they've chosen to. They've state power to be autocratic or selectively effective, mm-hmm. in, you know, killing people or right. um, repressing their, mm-hmm. their economies. So, I think in particular, because they've been. Um, I think effective in some senses of protecting the incidents, reducing the incidence yep. of risk, rather than simply pooling it. Mm-hmm. Now that those, the, the, you know, risk protection, closed economy, repressed mm-hmm. financial sectors are being taken away, so. now we see more of the chaos that's been well. sort of
0: hidden by the repression. The second one is... Um, well, w- before you go to the second question, is a pretty big question. Let me just try <laughs> to answer that or indicate how I would answer it if I had, like, okay. you know, several hours to do so. Uh, one, um, It is true. I agree with you that many of these countries have great capacity. They they can protect the property rights, but they protect the property rights of the incumbent elite. They can, you know, they they, they certainly have capacity to for those purposes. Uh, But the democratization variable doesn't is not doesn't correlate very well with uh, any of the things that I'm talking about because many of the countries that are very poor, tax collection such as the Philippines or 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 India, are certainly uh, democratic and have among de- developing countries are, are 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 democratic for a long period of time. So the variable is a is a governance variable uh, other than the de- that that me, the democratization is not is not effective in that the only thing that democratization actually predicts uh or the absence of democratization actually effectively predicts according to the work of Adam Chorsky is uh is the size of families. And my argument uh with regard to Chorsky's work is the reason you, you get that is that when you have highly autocratic regimes you get large families because people uh, want to protect themselves from risk, so they, they they create a large family. In fact, the, the the parts of the world that have the highest amount of uh, autocracy and political risk have the most uh, endo- uh, the most uh, endogamous marriages. Uh, so, if you look at the Islamic world, you look at Pakistan, 50% of all marriages are with cousins. In Iraq, 35% of all marriages are with cousins. So, so long as you have those kinds of uncertainties, people respond by marrying their their relatives, and by having large families. But that's about the only consistency you have that relates to the distinction between democracy and autocracy. Uh, So there are other things, and that's why the simple-minded pursuit of democracy in foreign policy is just, uh, it doesn't sell to people in the development world. There's just no data for it, there's just no proof of it. Uh, Countries like China or East Asia have uh, done much better in the social sector than than, than India has. So there are other things going on here. So we, why, why don't we wait? I mean, do you want to? Uh, a lot of other people have questions, and we'll come back to yours. Uh, your question? Yeah,
2: actually, it sort of follows from that. So that I'm persuaded by your um, notion that uh, of institutional to happen on the government's front. I'm, I'm wondering if there is a latent factor that's not institutional um, that makes that affect. I'm, hmm. I'm hearing lots of examples of, uh, of, of weak capacity governments and the and Pakistan, Philippines, China. But then, you know, it doesn't have to democratic look at East Asia or China. And I hear him, and I said, well, isn't it social policy? I mean, isn't the, the critical institutional reform of the
0: United in or during the land reform, and not really
2: governance reforms understood in the the common mm-hmm. uh, well, uh, the property yeah. structure so
0: that you can have a reasonable, yeah. of a reasonable property structure? Yeah. Well, that's uh, what James Madison believed, and uh, that's what many of our founding uh, fathers believe, because I've actually uh, read a lot of the materials uh, and, and, and on that subject. And, and certainly, that's what made for the success of the East Asia tigers. Uh, and uh, maybe you, you may have seen some of the work I've written, The Key to the Asia Miracle, where I make that argument. Uh, and I would certainly say that in countries like Latin America, that's really what you want to confront. They've had 20 years of macroeconomic neoliberal reform, and they have not made any progress in creating policy continuity. And they've now, you know, most of this is being either un- overturned or. or or the region is now highly uncertain again, So, and for that very reason. So, I would say that that's a pretty fundamental area, and actually, the, the second chapter of this book does make that argument that you just made. So, yes, I absolutely agree with that. I uh, saw so your hand. Yes? Uh, yeah, could you separate out more so the institution from the policy? Uh, it sounds like all these places
2: have institutions, it's just they function badly. They do stupid things. In the case of India, there was a long period of time. It was the Work very
0: well in of the so there are better, Well the really th- that's a very interesting question the relationship between policies and institutions. and so for a long time the development community, particularly in the 80s took the policy side. And said, you know, you need policies. So that's when we had the so called Washington consensus and, and so that was everything was policy driven. Uh, then in the nineties we kind of got more of the institutional side with the Doug North, the Soto people having some influence. And so you had a lot of emphasis on institutional building building. Uh, and in both cases you, you don't have you, you still have disappointment. Uh, you still have a political economy of disappointment. Uh, and, and so I asked the question uh, what do we need? And, and, and so my argument is that we need, uh, you know, fundamental political social reform, not just, you know, institutions that, or, or policies that's not sufficient, uh, in itself, because institutions are easily circumvented by the way that they're managed. Uh, the, so. Why
2: do you call yourself an institutionalist? Well, this is a new, a new, a new variety of
0: institutionalism is the anti-institutional approach. <laughs> uh, it's true. Uh, so I probably, I either get kicked out or I'll convince people they've got to go up to the next, uh, next category, which is, uh, as this, the last speaker said, we don't know exactly what that is, but we do know that a lot of the knee-jerk, r- 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 uh, responses that we get, uh, particularly in the, in, the, in the policy area, are not, are not are not are not the right ones. They don't stand up to scrutiny and to data. Uh, yes, Tim. Would you call yourself a participatory mm-hmm.
1: institutionalist? So well, it's not so much the, the democracy-autocracy, but it's institutions that allow for the aggregation of information, be it under um, autocratic or. or, or Various kinds of autocratic regimes, mm-hmm. um, so some of which are more conducive to sharing information uh, 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 than others. So, and there are various democracies um, which are more open and transparent. Mm-hmm. Some of which they used to be very open and transparent, becoming less and
2: less so. um uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, like the one
1: in which we live. I'm I'm it's sure. it's, 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 yeah, well, that's it's, a, it's a good example of how that. you can you can it's have institutions
0: and they could be manipulated by the, the political <laughs> coalitions. Uh, and, and so yeah, institutions are, 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 so I agree with you. The information uh, aggregation variable and the extent to which we, we focus on that uh, certainly helps explain a great deal of the forms of capital. And my book actually has a very modest goal, which, uh, which is to explain capital uh, and, and, and the development of capital and, and to identify the variables that contribute to capital formation. It doesn't even get into a lot of these other areas. For the, and so, from that perspective, what you're saying is entirely accurate. The information aggregation issue is fundamental. Uh, and, and different, uh, you know, for an, another point that, that, that uh, people have made is that clientelism uh, overrides the institutional structure. So, for example, in the Philippines, you know, where clientelism is the cement of the society, no matter how you reconstruct the institutions, uh, it still matters you know, who you're related to and who you're a client of and who you're a patron of and who you know. So you know, when you go into a, uh, the Philippines to get a, to get a um, uh, license uh, to drive a car, there's one line for the people who have political connections and then you're in and out in 10 minutes and then the other people need two three months uh, to get the same document. So in those societies, the, the institutional design doesn't tell you very much. Uh, about how the actual institutions function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these, I think, are the realities that development uh, policy has to grope with now if it wants to start to, to really deal with the, the, the bottlenecks that exist. Um, I saw some other hands. Yep. You, oh, so now we can go to your second question since the other people have.
3: All right. um, the second one is about the human development when you mentioned the, the, the big problem with the lack of incentives for the leaders to provide new institutions, there's this big vacuum. Um, I disagree. I think that uh, your even your answers to the other questions suggest that the in the area of a lot of these development goals, there are institutions. Questions: institutional change. They're very stable, traditional, informal, family-based, risk pooling, or simply having children marry your cousins. Right. Um, some of the development goals, the you know, most interesting to see are the ones that don't have a gains from trade associated with it for the, um, mm-hmm. the, the government leaders. For example, part of that was the effect of women, women's rights, equality, mm-hmm. which you very stable, very resistant, you know, traditional institutions. And uh, under what conditions are they going to switch from either reliance on family or informal or simply traditional hierarchies and switch to change institutions towards ones that give people that capacity to enter you know, the marketplace um, have access to the risk pooling institutions no. that the poor people don't, the rich people do because they have these stable assets, things mm-hmm. like that. So I think um, the question of vacuum isn't quite right, but that well, when you finished your talk with, with institutional change is really, I think, the best really interesting. Okay, interesting. I,
0: I, I, the, what, what you're saying is, is very complicated, so let me just see if I can understand it. Um, my argument is that if you, let's well, say, when you to look at the United States and, and you look at the, the Movement of our ancestors from the farms to the cities. Uh, what what made the the fundamental change that allowed uh, for there to be support for the kind of, for the, for the market uh, to to really be the determining principle of economic exchange was the the new the New Deal and was the social insurance that was put into place at that time. That was really a, a fundamentally defining. Aspect of, of America's uh, success of the market economy. This, this social protection issue is exactly where uh, East Asia right now is stuck. They can't find a way to provide uh, st- to get the state to provide social insurance. Most insurance comes from the, co- the companies, so that means the companies are, are becoming increasingly non-perform, uh, non, not capable of perf- uh, performing <coughs> globally because of the labor rigidity that companies have. Uh, so. I, I think that's the answer to that is is, is, um, is, is the ability for there to be a social consensus on, on, on social protection that allows people to put themselves at the mercy of a, a, an open free job market. Uh, and, and in an agrarian society, you know, you, different people uh, and, the, and the family pro- providing different roles. Uh, and China now is, is going through with 20% agrarian. I mean, 20% urban is now 32%. is still largely an agrarian society. It's dealing with this. Uh, most of the Chinese policymakers see this as the fundamental issue now uh, to prevent the social unrest that could cause this whole experiment, market economics, to unravel. So, I, I, I so that's my answer to to your question. I don't. So I don't know what you mean by a vacuum.
3: Oh, that was your turn, what <laughs> you Oh,
0: i use it, but I must, well I don't know in what context I use the <laughs> word <in a> vacuum. <laughs> <now> I, <laughs> yes? Um, I'm very frustrated, when I wanted to look at the
2: so One thing struck me as something I wanted to know more about. It, it the kind of thing, if I heard
0: you correctly, that um, relatively high quality government isn't that expensive. Right, it could yes. be done by, But it was done in, in the 11th century in Britain. Uh,
2: my, my question is, so you mean relative by some external energy. I can't imagine you could set up a, a complex civil service system in the career ladder that didn't pay well relative to prevailing wages in society. Right. So long as, as you have a, pay a pay high, a market
0: economy where, where people have alternatives in the private sector where they can go, then the government uh, would have to pay the market prevailing wage, you know, to keep the people in the civil service or, com- or compete, prevent them from be- becoming corrupt. Absolutely, but, but but many societies that we're dealing with don't have those op- opportunities at all. Russia didn't have those opportunities when it, when it went into, when it developed its, its, its transition to a market economy, um, and yet it did so with basically bureaucratic institutions. Germany certainly... Uh, the Prussian part of Germany didn't have those market opportunities with the gentleman in the back there talked about the military. Uh, it was a military society. It was not, it was a society based on hierarchy. It wasn't based on on, 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 on open and competitive uh, labor uh, market. So um, so that's true. Once you have a, a market economy, then, then you need a, a government that pays that wages. Something that our government uh, simply fails to Recognize, uh, but um, and, and the countries that have done best in the world, in such as East Asia, uh, with regard to modernization, do do have relatively market equivalent compensation packages for the civil service, such as Singapore or, or, or East Asian countries, as you know. But when you're at an underdeveloped point and the market economy is not a, a important alternative, then uh, status counts for a lot. Uh, I mean, even in China today, when you look at what's going on. You see enormous amount of emphasis placed on medals, on, on the military organization of factories, uh, on, on public displays of status that go to, to people who, who, who manage these state-owned industries. Um, you now, we always put the emphasis on, you know, look how market-oriented they become. But actually, when you look at Chinese enterprises, they're not managed in any way as a market. They're managed as a hierarchy with, with status being more important than salary differentiation. Uh, so, so I think that that the, the hierarchical form, form of organization uh, can lead to a lot of efficiency that can lead to a breakout of the what the, you know, the woman who spoke before you said, where families rely on each other entirely or on or, or on their, uh, their their immediate uh, family net- networks. Hierarchical societies are a step up from that in terms of social cooperation, social coordination, uh, and, and they're much more productive than, than, fa- than, than family-based regimes. And they can engage in much more capital formation than can countries that uh, you know, most people have to take care of large extended families. So they can't possibly take care of the company. Uh, so, or, or the entity that they're, that they're responsible for. But this is the problem in the Middle East is that no matter who you put in a position of authority, they act in, in, in ways against the state because they, they have to uh, take care of their family. Uh, and so, you know, the modern state for, uh, concept, uh, that underlies the bureaucratic concept underlies most of the organizations that we attribute to, to the modern state simply can't be, uh, transitioned to there so, so quickly as we would like because they don't even have these, these basic loyalty structures to, to the state and it will take a long time for that to be accomplished. So I, I thought, uh, know. yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, since you come here from Hoover, to argue in favor of more regulation than well, I do. I'm not in Hoover anymore. Let me give you a Hoover qu- uh, uh, I mean, you could argue that the problem is the government. It's not the solution. And mm-hmm. what you want to do is get rid of the government and get rid of regulation, and get rid of these uh, distorting uh, forms of bureaucracy, which basically, for all reasons you've given, uh, the party is not paid enough and so forth, they you screw it up. Mm-hmm. And that the fact that you got Social Security in the 1930s was because the United States spent in you know, 60 years growing massively uh, because the government was incapable of collecting taxes, and that that not so rich they could actually afford something like that. And well, look, okay, let me let's back up. I think every one of those
0: uh, hypotheses, uh, which I've explored in the book, all proved that did not stand up to data. First, the United States didn't grow that dramatically. Uh, its growth rate was about one or two percent, significantly lower than the growth rates of the emerging market economies today. Uh, and in fact, when 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 you can actually uh, view, particularly in the urban part of the United States, uh, the introduction of uh, uh, the progressive standards for go- governance, uh, you, you actually cut the cost of public building of necessary projects uh, significantly. So that this clearly uh, gains and productivity from, 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 from that, from, you know, if you want to build bridges, if you want to have an industrial society with roads and, and, and interconnectedness, and, and, and the, the, certainly the costs are significantly reduced after administrative reform, uh, and the willingness of people to contribute is cut. But secondly, um, when you get rid of the state, uh, you, you don't necessarily have. Uh, Private institutions springing into existence because the United States had a very strong civil society in many regards. It had religious groups. That all these entities that have either never existed or have been uh, crushed out of existence in developing countries. You know, once again, if you look at Timothy's research on, on uh, East Asia, I mean, on, on the former Soviet bloc, you don't see uh, all of the civil society capabilities that the United States had in the Toke sense. The Tuchelvillian structure of American society is completely anomalous. There's no uh, developing society that has those precedents, and that's because uh, we had highly, uh, very, very strong communities. Uh, and these were based on religion, and these were based on, on many factors, these were based on local government. You know, when you say get rid of government, local government in the United States In the 19th century was extremely strong. It was stronger than it was, than it is today. Maybe central government may not have been strong, but certainly local government was strong, so much so that it intruded in everything. I mean, as you know, we had blue laws. We had laws that told people what they could do in their bedroom. And and we had, so, so the notion that we lived in a free society in in the early 19th century because we didn't have a large government is simply, is simply completely historical uh, myth. that's why I left Uber, actually, because uh, having had this conversation too many times and just finding it, you know, baseless and, and silly. Uh, yes?
1: That I question a little bit on policy implications? So yes. one policy implication could be, well, what the, what would the World Bank and the IMF should start doing then is making loans contingent upon uh, real political reform. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that would be, I don't know if you want to trust them to make those... those well, that's the problem. You can't really trust them.
0: That's the problem to make those, but if we could agree on a criteria that, 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 that represented viable, sustainable political reform that led to accountability and, and to, to people and all the things that they, they give lip service to, if you could actually implement that, then then that would be fine. But you see, the problem is that uh, most of the the, the 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 people who have the large vote blocks in the IMF and the World Bank are more concerned with security than and, 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 and any other issue. So historically, and still to this day, uh, and we'll see if Wolfowitz uh, is a change, and most people aren't expecting it to be, uh, the, the criteria is uh, the security of, of the five or six uh, you know, major block leaders and not the economic uh, performance of the countries that receive it. Uh, and so you know, basically when you look at the flow of funds, it follows the security. Uh, Uh, trail, not an economic development trail, Uh, and and, and that hasn't changed, and that that hasn't changed because of who has the voting power, the United States, uh, Britain, uh, the Europeans, and and the Americans and Japan, Uh, and and, and their priority has always been their own geopolitical security, and they've given money out to the 10 countries in the world that contribute to that, and we had a slight period between 1976 and 1978 when the Carter uh, government uh, tried to change the logic of that, but then the geopolitical uh, punch came when, when you know, presumably Afghanistan was invaded and in the uh, situation in Iran and they ended up being neo-containment neo, uh, oriented and they went back to exactly the same policies. Actually, if you look at the election of 1980, as I've been looking at, the uh, foreign policies of, of, of the two uh, candidates, Reagan and Carter, were not really significantly different. Uh, and so you know, that's why I don't think we can trust these organizations because we can't, uh, unless we have a consensus uh, in our own country that economic development really matters to our security, we're not gonna see the voting pattern change. And the book I'm working on now is, is about security and development because I, th- I see that as a, the, the, really the, the, the stumbling block we face. Yes? I'm wondering if your argument,
2: your argument about applies to well, that's absolutely true.
0: But how to, how to get around that is something that nobody has come up with a good solution for because, as you know, many of the developing countries don't have representative governments. So if you give them more power, you're not going to necessarily get better developmental policies. So that's a that's 100% right. The people of the world are not well represented, uh, and, and the empowerment movement is still in the early stages. Uh, most people who, who are poor are, suffer from a lack of power. There's no question about that. Uh, but I, and I don't know. You know, there's no silver bullet for this either. You know, people say in macroeconomics, and when I when I when I used to uh, study this, one of my professors used to say, "Well, you should study macroeconomics because." You, know, you can control the world that way. You, all this stuff about development is no solution. But uh, you know, we haven't seen macroeconomic solving any of these problems. So that's why uh, I still believe we have to look at the you know look under the microscope and really look very co- carefully at this at this stuff. And, and that's why I'm trying to reinvigorate uh, comparative economics. But I think if you if you don't understand the difference between regimes and you have no history and no knowledge of institutions. You're not going to be very effective. Uh, and, and, the, you know, that's basically, I think, the dilemma that economics finds itself in is that most economists don't, don't pay attention to, to really to the difference between institutions and regimes. Uh, and they, 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 the newest work that's coming out is strictly based on theorems, not on, on, on regime, but on the understanding of regimes. So, um, so I think we still have a long intellectual battle to, to wage. That's, you know, essentially why I'm in the, on the academic side now, because I think that, uh, people in the policy world just don't have good ideas to work with. Uh, and so until they have better ideas, they're not going to do, you know, they're not going to do a good job. They also have bad representation and they represent the wrong interests. <coughs> um, that's another set of issues. We, we, so a lot of things that need to be worked on.
1: On that cheering you know. <laughs> Let me uh, call this to a close, and if you want to hang around and uh, chat some more, uh, uh, I imagine Hilton would be would be more than willing. And uh, but I know some of you have to leave. So I just want to thank Hilton, thank everybody for coming. Thank you. Five.
3: Yeah. Okay. Are you interested? I really I'm finishing one on Social Security
2: privacy. Starting one on yeah. risk yeah. and the other one Latin America work. But as his name is.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so my director was here. I had a sort of
3: protection conference in the fall. And he's, he's, he's working
1: on a book oh, on Asia. Oh,
2: okay. And they seem to be at the world of a new deal. deal. And a lot of times the they're talking about social contracts, sort of moving towards a shift.